Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out online at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee has a lot of great virtual content coming out, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. And for anyone tuning in for the first time that are also not familiar with who the HPA is, they're a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. And if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are, or who I am for that matter, check out episode one of this podcast so I don't make everyone listen to a long spiel at the beginning of every single episode. So we're here today to talk about Amazon's new season two of the television series The Boys, And this job, as you probably guessed, considering the timing of its release, had its post-production continue through this COVID-19 era that we're in. So we're here today to discuss how this affected their job, what their workflow was, and hopefully learn a few things along the way. So here with us today to reveal just that is Giovanni DiGiorgio and Haydar Adele. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. All right, no problem. So just a quick background on these guys for everyone tuning in. Giovanni is a finishing producer at Company 3 and has worked on a lot of awesome jobs like Star Trek Picard, Jack Ryan, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Barry, Space Force, and many more. Hadar is an online editor, having worked on a lot of similar jobs because they're a team on a lot of these things. So Star Trek Picard, Lost in Space, Narcos, Mexico, Black Sails, Patriot, and Barry. There's a lot more on that list. Be sure to check these guys out on IMDb if you want the the ridiculously long (laughs) (laughs) resume. So production, as I understand it, started shooting well before COVID-19 started, right? I'm just curious, when did they wrap, though? They wrapped late November, but we had already started doing some camera tests and some whatnot in about August of 2019. So they were still shooting while we were doing like a, a little bit of testing. I see. And all of that testing was assuming, considering in November, we had no idea any of this was coming. Yeah. Uh, I, you you had planned, I'm sure, for people coming in in person and the regular routine, right? Oh, yeah. At this time, we were still fully operational, like fully open. Uh, people yeah. were in the building. I mean, I don't even know if I was aware of COVID at the time. Yeah. Okay. So I think the best way to tackle this would be to walk through this as sequentially, I guess, as we can. So were you doing the dailies on this as well? Uh, no, 24P uh, did the dailies. That's uh, uh, Sony's in-house team. Oh, interesting. They did the dailies. And so they also did the VFX polls and whatnot. Hmm. So were you receiving LTOs throughout the job that were getting sent to you to eventually work on in post and they had their own copy of the entire negative to do those VFX polls throughout production? Yeah, 24P kept it in-house, um, but we received media over at our sister company at the time, Encore. They basically ingested all the media and uh, they were our processing facility in terms of like getting us what we needed for the actual episodes that Hadar would build. Oh, I see. So the actual initial consolidation of media when you had a turnover from offline editorial would be done at Encore and they essentially prep all the media and that goes over to you, Hadar? Yeah, yeah. They basically trim the original camera masters and send them to Company 3 for online. I see. And so when did you actually begin this process? When did you actually have episode one turned over? Was it 
after what I would, you know, I'm thinking back as to like March is really when things got crazy. But was this after or before then? Based on my records, uh, our first episode that we online was a, like uh, like a pre-lock was around October of 2019. So still early. Gotcha. So at that point, there was someone in the office and doing at Encore, there was someone physically there loading tapes, obviously, because it was business as usual. But once COVID happened, was all of the media just online or how did they handle that having someone in the office to like, because when this whole thing started, my, one of my big first concerns was, wow, what if we don't have the entire neg, who's there? plugging in tapes or plugging in hard drives, whatever the the negative is on, someone has to physically do that. Yeah. By that time, uh, you know, we should have had all the media at Encore, uh, you know, copied from 24P. I can't speak for certain just because it's it was our sister company, but they they did either have someone remotely, you know, trimming the media, like running it through the pipeline um, and sending it to us or somebody was like in the building. And by that time, we had reduced staff to like a skeleton crew. So, you know, I can only speak for Company 3. We we still had people in the building, but it was very reduced, you know, for employee safety. And just, you know, at the time, everything was sort of new and scary. So just, you know, we had like reduced numbers just uh, yeah, just for that. Yeah, it makes sense. So for you, Hadar, were you remote logging in by the time this all went down? Were you remote logging into a computer at work or were you going in and you had your own room? that you know you're actually physically in yeah so what happened was that we we set it up so that we could have the remote capability just in case everything completely shut down but i preferred and as the colorist preferred as well to be in the building and looking at these on actual real monitors because mm. after the clients stopped coming in we basically became the last set of eyes to be put yeah. on the show and all all the incoming visual effect shots and whatnot. So I felt more comfortable going in because I needed to see it on an X300 and a giant OLED just to know, you know, everything is good. But we did have it, we did have it set up. So in case of an emergency, in case, you know, mm -hmm. because it was the beginning and nobody knew what was going to happen in case they said, no, you're not essential. You can't go somewhere right now. Then we would be able to access from home the system, not the media, obviously, but the system to control it from home and to see its output. I see. Yeah. And at that point, were you telling any of your clients that you have the option to come in, but this is what that means? Or was it, you know, if you want to be involved in any of these sessions, you have to be remote and here's the solution for that? Yeah, actually, what, what started happening was clients one by one themselves, their their production side basically shut down and they stopped going anywhere. So they were they all switched to remote and what we were doing is, you know, we were coming in, but our sessions were being streamed remote to them um, in their homes, basically. So they stopped going to the office. They stopped coming to the post facility. They basically were expecting um, virtual sessions. So I see. Yeah. So we switched the, the color sessions and the edit sessions to virtual immediately. I see. And how were you in terms of if you if you had to whatever for whatever reason work from home, how were you going to remote connect? Like, you know, there's Splashtop, TeamViewer, some people are using RGS to actually remote connect to the computer. Yeah, I think our setup is RGS and I then see. and then we were using something called UltraGrid to get live the live output of the room back in on a separate monitor. So you would have the GUI on, on one monitor and you would have the live output of the, the uh, resolve 
on a second monitor. So it would simulate a bay pretty well. And the speed was great. It's just that, you know, it was a it was a fail safe, basically. It was just for a case of emergency. Because I personally, as an online editor, don't trust looking at things on, you know, anything smaller than a 65 inch in UHD. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I need to find those pixels and the camera crew reflections and boom mics and things like that. So Yeah, it's, it's a scary thought with, uh, you know, I, I heard this, this is a crazy story, but I heard a story once about a job that had no one had been looking at a uh, the actual nag in 4k until they finally got to online because everyone through dailies had hd monitors and then they found out they had lit pixels everywhere but you couldn't see it on these hd monitors that they had and it was across the entire nag and thinking about what you just said if you're looking at these smaller monitors hey or hey if you don't have a reference monitor at home and you're only looking at a gui monitor and it's got a small resolution are there things that you just won't see Exactly. And the refresh rate on, on streaming, no matter how good your internet is or the pipeline is, that refresh rate is going to mask a lot of things. You know what I mean? What if a, a motion effect had a stutter in it? You don't. You can't even tell. Was that stutter the stream? <laughs> is it a bad time warp? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let's play it again. It looks a little wonky. I don't know. Is it artifacting? I don't know. <laughs> you this know? time it played back a little better, but it's still questionable. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I, I'm like, dude, my name is on this show and I take ownership of it. Like, I, I need to see this in my bay. Like, mask up and let's go. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you said Ultra Grit. Was that the name of the Ult application that you had mentioned? Ultra Grid. G-R-I-D. Yeah. Oh, Grid. Yeah. Okay. I haven't heard of that. Hmm, interesting. Um, and if you were using RGS to remote connect, the Ultra Grid then allowed you to stream your reference monitor, you were saying, to a reference monitor that that would be local in your home if you had it in your home. That's the yeah. idea. Basically, yeah. So I, I basically replicated my setup at home as what I have at work. I, I use ultra wide monitors for the for the GUI. So I had the same size ultra wide and then I had mm -hmm. a basically quote unquote client monitor next to it, which grabbed the SDI output of the actual bay of the actual machine at company three and played it back again. But this was the backup. We ended up, you know, not yeah, using yeah. it for actual session. I see. And were you ever going out to clients that would want to, I mean, you said that you said that you were offering up this stream to clients in their home as well, right? How would that work? Yes. So every session was supervised basically. And uh, we use mm -hmm. Streambox. Streambox uh, went from the session straight to their homes they they logged on and actually for the showrunner didn't we have like a the a calibrated monitor situation for them too when they were watching color sessions we did no, that on not a lot for of this, shows for this one no we didn't we didn't send a monitor out, out for this one we did uh laptop virtuals with uh with them throughout right it was laptop virtuals yeah yeah so for streambox for anyone tuning in that isn't familiar with that or maybe they don't work on the level of jobs that we're talking about that can afford a, a system like this i understand you go sdi out of your system that's at company three it goes into a hardware box mm -hmm. and then that encodes it to then go through the internet essentially to a web ui or to another piece of hardware on the client's end uh i mean there's there's different ways to do it the way that we were utilizing for this were laptop virtuals so it it through the Streambox uh, server, clients would be able to log in and monitor it using uh, Streambox's uh, app on their laptop, and it just streams it straight to them. Gotcha. And so you would 
I'm just thinking of like a Clearview Flex kind of thing where you'd send them like a link or Evercast does the same kind of thing where you send them a link, they click on that and maybe there's a password to get in. Is it kind of similar? Yeah, to yeah. I mean, there's definitely a user and password and then, um, you know, we would all be able to log in using the same link and just make sure that everyone has the same password. I see. And at that point, they're only seeing your reference monitor. They're not seeing the user interface of the application that you're onlining in, right? No, just the output of the bay. Yeah. I see. Gotcha. And what was that software that you were using? The software to, to actually do the edit in the online? Oh, sorry. Yeah. The, yeah, the actual edit. We, we use Resolve. Yeah. DaVinci Resolve. Yeah. So we... we, we oh, cool. Yeah. We online in Resolve so that the, the color and the online share the same timeline. The colorist and, and I, we work on the exact same timeline. So we could actually do collaboration and he can color while I'm dropping in. But we basically have one quote unquote hero timeline that is the show. That's awesome. Yeah. So there's no there's no moving back and forth of media basically. So we don't render out ungraded VAMs or the color doesn't render out um, CCMs or things like that. Yeah, you're not rendering out a real exactly. like a like a DPX or XR sequence to then go to the yeah. colorist yeah. and then they render again and go back to you. <laughs> and also, it, it allows us to to actually um, we online from the camera master codec, so we don't transcode the client's camera masters. So in the case really? in the case of the boys, it was the Sony Venice, correct? Yeah, Gio? yeah, the Sony Gosh, Venice. That camera is just on everything now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and season one was on red, but season two they switched to Sony Venice, and uh, yeah, so we just had the the, the remux, quote unquote, like the shortened versions of the same MXF files, and Resolve just tapped into that. So the uh, the colorist Siggy, he had con- he had control over the metadata interpretation of the camera masters. And there was no intermediate step. You know, a lot of shows shoot 6.5K or 8K, 5K, whatever, and then they finish UHD. But we just tap into the 6.5K file. So if you do a stabilization or a move or a push-in or whatever, you're actually using the full raster. And you haven't limited yourself to a 3840 by 2160 mezzanine render. So Yeah, for sure. And then if you needed to change the ISO or other things that you want to get at the original camera files, you can do so. Exactly. That's great. And I can't remember if that one can be trimmed or not, but certain MXF files can be trimmed and certain MXFs can't be. Or do you remember if, if by chance you were trimming all of the masters or did you just keep the entire shot if it made the cut? No, we were trimming them. Yeah. You were? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Then at that point, the files aren't even that big. S- XOCN ST has been just has been being used on a lot of jobs that I've seen recently. And it was funny when, when the Venice first came out, we had a job that recorded raw, like the actual raw option. And then there was some questions that came up from the DP and from the post producer about certain things that we were seeing within uh, certain issues with it. And then it was funny. We were told, you know, Oh, why are you using that? And the post producer was like, wait, what? It's, it's the raw option. What do you mean? Why am I using this? And they told us, Oh, that's a holdover from the F 55. You should actually <laughs> use XOCN XT. And we're just like, what? <laughs> okay. And, um, ever since then, it's, it's funny though. A lot of the jobs that I'm seeing come in are going ST. Do you, do you remember if this one was XT or ST? I, ST being the like the middle. Yeah, I think this was XT, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Geo, you might know more because you had the spec. Uh, I I honestly don't remember off the top of my head. But I remember seeing <laughs> XT at the at, in the the codec description of all the files I was looking at. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Okay. So then, 
When I think of Company 3, I always think of you guys as being really color savvy in terms of color management compared to a lot of companies. I'm just curious. Okay, so you're going through Resolve. At that point, were you doing any kind of a color managed pipeline if there were other ancillary cameras to get everything into like an S gamut 3 Cine? Or did everything get converted to log C? Or do you, do you know the, the, the color management side of how this worked? Um, maybe, Joe, you, you were more familiar with if Sigiat's doing anything like that. Because they were, they were mostly, I would say, 95% on the Sony. They might have had, oh, wow. they okay. might have had stuff that was um, a stock shot, but every stock shot is a visual effect. So it would come to us in the um, S-log uh, color space anyways. Once, once the vendor got done with it, um, and it's not the kind of show that like slaps GoPros to things. Like they, they're usually using their main cameras for everything, for all the action sequences and all that. There was a little bit of red shot, but my understanding is that we converted everything to uh, S Log Three Cine because that was the that was the color space that Siggy was coloring in. So the idea was just to convert everything in there, just so he had a common color space, like with one single LUT uh, for the output. We weren't doing like a you know, a specific LUT per shot situation. Understood. But if you had everything get into one common grading space, then at that point he can use the same output transform to go to whether it's P3 or... This did an HDR finish, right? Uh, it was HDR finish, but it, it's, okay. um, it was primarily Rec. 709. And then afterwards, yeah. uh, we converted to HDR and Siggy, our colorist, would do his pass and convert to I see. HDR. Amazon does HDR10. We haven't, as far as I know, we haven't done an, uh, a Dolby Vision 8 Amazon show yet. Gotcha. And so just to go back a second, that would be great to touch on that too, but for the whole Resolve end-to-end thing, was there times when, you know, Resolve is getting better every day in terms of what they have in there for you, Hadar, for editing and recreating opticals that were created in the offline I'm just curious, were there times where you're like, you know what, Resolve just isn't cutting it. I got to I gotta go out, do it in something else, and then bring the files back in for the odd shot that had something specific done. Right. Or maybe there were plugins used as an example. Right. So so in my experience, you know, I my main job is actually recreating opticals. So I deal with this a lot. I first try to avoid stepping out of the Resolve. And with now with, you know, the current Resolve, I mean, Fusion is a huge tool. So I can use Fusion for a mass number of opticals. There are a few times mm-hmm. where I step out to something like Mocha, let's say, to do a wild tracking removal situation that Fusion is capable of, but it will take much longer. So I do step out for that. I find myself less and less having to rely on an Avid as a backup because there were times where you say, oh, this could only be done in an Avid, you know. This fluid morph for something could only be done in an Avid and for it to look good. But now Resolve has so many tools like that and their fluid motion equivalent and their fluid morph equivalent that we can just mm-hmm. do all of that in the Resolve timeline. So it, it's given it's giving me more freedom to, to not have to step out. Because each time you step out, there's a whole, you know, you export a format, you do the thing, you export again, you ingest it as an optical. And, and uh, I'm trying to do less and less of that and now I think I'm, I've gotten to a point where I'm like 75% in Resolve. That's great. And I've certainly heard certain colorists, I feel like this is a little bit more of an older school mentality, but they're a little, sometimes a little bit afraid of 
the idea of having some of this editing and some of this stuff happen in the same application that they're grading in. And that's why they liked to have just a clean playout of, you know, a clean DPX sequence that goes to them that they notch and then they can grade. But obviously, Siggy's been doing this for a while. This wasn't new. Uh, yeah, we've been doing this. Uh, we, we started with Narcos, Siggy and I, and hmm. uh, season um, three of Narcos. And uh, we were sort of the pioneers because this was you know, at least three years ago. And we worked closely with Black mm -hmm. Magic. actually. We, we were on version 12.5 when we started. So Black Ma and Siggy has a relationship, direct relationship with Black Magic, where they come in, their engineers come in, the product developers come in, and we actually have little brainstorming sessions on what the problem is and how, how they can solve it and all this stuff. So they basically, they actually implement a lot of my editing asks into the version, version 14 release. Hmm. It was just different kinds of doing a split with your reference. And I showed them how an Avid does it. I used to work on the Avid back then. And I showed them all the mm -hmm. stuff that I needed. And then all of a sudden by, by version 15 and now 16, even more, they've implemented so many editing tweaks that it's made it a robust system. And as as far as um, our company goes, all of our colorists are now used to their projects being conformed in the Resolve as well. I see. For one thing, it's been giving them this freedom because if you have transitions or multiple layer shots, you know, picture in picture situations, they have the control over each element. And before they would they would need mats for it or things like that. Yeah. And and right now if I do like a long dissolve or if I do a wipe, the the resolve makes that invisible to them. They're just creating each shot. And then they can choose to see the mix and, and then they could see the transition happen with their grade applied and they're like, oh there you go. Yeah, they don't have to worry about the transition yeah. themselves, then, like then, trying to create an, yeah. Exactly. And then other things like um, we title before color is even done. You know, a lot of times the titles are ready and replacing them, especially if there's titles over picture. So the EP who's sitting in the color bay and doing final color yeah. pass, they could see how color plays over under a title or a subtitle or something like that. And the colors can turn it off at any moment for it not to interfere. Or they can see it so they can see how it's like, oh, that's so bright that that white subtitle is not even registering and, you know, things like that. So it's it's, yeah. it's allowed a lot of flexibility and openness to the whole process where there's not a hard rendered. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's really nice for, for your clients in the room. Exactly. Uh, color management as well. I was going to say color management. It's super helpful not having to retrace an entire reel or VAM. Uh, because mm -hmm. we only have to deal with the shots that are replaced. So when Hadar drops in like new VFX shots, those are the shots that get traced as opposed to bringing in a brand new sequence, you know, depending on the workflow of the facility, you don't have to manage as much color because everything is staying the same except for the few shots that have just changed. And just to make sure that I'm following as well as some of the other people that may not know that term color tracing. So you, what you mean is that if a new VFX shot comes in, you drop that in, you need to reapply the color that was on the previous version to that new version? Yeah. And usually we keep the previous version active so that, um, you know, A, the client can see the difference and B, if the colorist needs to see the difference, they can also do that as well. I see. So, so this actually allows us to work in layers so that there, there have been times where the client's like, we're going to send you three versions of this shot and the showrunner is going to sit with the colorist and decide which one. <laughs> and so we keep all three active, for example, and they can switch between them. Whereas the old me method of, uh, you know, conforming color was that it's a flat stream and you're rendering into it. So you can't see multiple options at the same time. 
he can AB with the previous version. Would you be in the background standing by for those requests or is Siggy actually turning on and off layers and, and, and sometimes making those adjustments if they say, you know what, we're going to go with version two and you had version three in there before? Or are you doing that while he's coloring and altering that sequence? No, he's able to, to, to access each clip and disable and enable as he pleases. Gotcha. And okay, yeah, I, I, I guess I wasn't necessarily asking in terms of can he? More does he? He does, yes. Uh, is, is, yeah, he or does. is he afraid? Of, or is he afraid? No, of like, no, no, no. I don't want to touch that. No, I mean we do. We gotcha. we asked the we asked actually Black Magic to to create something called conform lock, and that's basically mm-hmm. it locks the timeline but doesn't lock lock it. You can disable and enable things, but you can't move anything around, right? Mm-hmm. He said, let's make, let's make it you know sort of fail safe that people can go and disable and enable things in A B shots. But they can't change the they can't necessarily change the edit points. I see. That's smart. That's been helpful. Yeah, for sure. So going back to the the sticking on the color track here, then I guess in remote reviews for that, was Siggy in the office? I guess would be the first question. Yes. Uh, yeah, Siggy. Uh, I mean, much like Hadar, Siggy was in the office, and anytime clients needed to review color, uh, we utilized the same Streambox software. So that clients could review at their home. And then, you know, we had upwards to like eight, nine people on a conference Mm -hmm. call, all looking at the same feed while Siggy was in the bay, looking at his hero monitor and coloring. I see. And in the past, just for reference, what would have happened? I assume you'd have three, four people in the bay and no one would have been remote. Yeah. I mean, um, every episode, like basically the first half of the season we, you know, we were still operating as normal. Uh, we had done color reviews in the Bay, you know, like looks, the entire look, uh, I mean, was established in season one, but they just continued it on in season two. But yeah, we would just do uh, our color reviews in the Bay just as normal. Yeah, I see. And did that, did that pose any new challenges for, you know, did you have any clients that really had to get used to it? Or maybe they, I'm just thinking of if I was on a laptop and I had my brightness of my screen turned down or I don't know, like, I'm just wondering, did you have to go through any trials through this process to be like, OK, you know what? Now we've got certain specs that we're going to tell everybody you should be on at least, you know, a retina display laptop or you should have your brightness turned up to the level six or certain. were there certain things that you learned through this process? Yeah, luckily, I mean, we had Streambox as uh, an established workflow at the time, so we were able to just keep moving that forward. Uh, you know, we had recommended specs where we request that the, you're using at least a retina laptop, just as you said, there was like a very specific brightness point. And that's, I think a, I a problem with retina laptops is you can't just punch in a number and be like, be a brightness, you know, 40%. You had to kind of give them a guide, be like, Hey, go, you know, keep hitting bright, uh, the brightness toggle. What is it? Like F F one and two. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Keep hitting that button until it gets to like, right this point, And you're kind of giving them a guide like that. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I would, I would, I can't speak for the client directly, but I would say it, it, I would assume that there was definitely like a little bit of a trust that, you know, needed to be gained and just from them seeing material that they had already looked at in the bay on a laptop that developed that trust. And they were able to be like, Hey, you know, I'm getting what I'm asking for. And, and this is representative, obviously not a hundred percent. Cause you're not looking at a, you know, $30,000, uh, X300 or whatever it costs. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you're looking at the next best thing you can. Yeah, for sure. And were most of the people on laptops or were there any people also on something like an iPad? At the time, we were not uh, utilizing the iPad. It was strictly laptops. Uh, since mm-hmm. then, we've we've moved to iPads. 
And um, there's a whole bunch of color testing that was done around that time. But but at the time, we we were primarily on laptops. I see. And what about H- like any of the HDR reviews? Was that a thing? Were you able to do HDR reviews or were they all SDR reviews? And then when you did the HDR pass, it was kind of siloed and there wasn't a review during that. We didn't do any HDR uh, over Streambox. Um, you know, uh, they trusted Siggy with it. Like he had already developed the look from season one. Um, and it was one of those things where it, uh, I can't speak for the color 100%, but he was taking that look and, uh, you know, basically putting it in that space to where, uh, you know, he was happy with it. But we didn't do any uh, final reviews for HDR. So he just had the final, like when he finished the grade, the client didn't see it before it went out in in hdr no i mean we 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 sent you know files for them to review but you know he at least had like the final look on like x300 in his bay i see yeah because i've heard of of some people using like moxion as an example is a streaming platform that uh, like you can put files on there for hdr review and i think frame.io recently updated theirs to offer that as well but is that the kind of thing that you mean? If, if you finished the episode, you'd send it out on something like that? Uh, no, we would send the files to the clients directly and they would look at it in-house, like at their editorial. Ah, uh, I see. Okay, gotcha. Okay. What about VFX reviews? Is this something that you normally host in your facility? Yeah, basically, um, not between vendor and client, but between, you know, the, when the show has approved a shot, quote unquote, coming to us to cut it into the show yeah that's something that's done by with me and the majority of it was done remotely this time because all the vfx were coming towards the end of the season you know everything takes a long time there's a lot of visual effects in this show i believe they averaged uh 400 shots per episode yeah and, mm. and they're long episodes wow. they're over 60 minutes all of them so but yeah so so they, yeah. they you know we had multiple multiple versions and there was a time when COVID first happened and nobody knew if these vendors are going to stay open or not all around the world. They had Sweden, Canada, Mm -hmm. India, and they asked their vendors to send everything as they have it as is. So we got like, how many shots, Gio? Like 3,000 shots or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't necessarily 3,000 all at once, but it was just, it was one of those things where I was getting bombarded by emails just being like, hey, we sent you files, we sent you files, we sent you files. And it was great, but at the same time, I was like, oh my God, like what, what is happening? Like they were just worried that tomorrow they might have to close the door and shut down the office. So get you yeah. everything they could. Yeah, basically that the show said, the show said to their vendors, yeah. get us everything as is just in case. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at that time when this all, when this all started, no one knew like. Exactly. Yeah. We had no idea what was happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just kind of, it made, it absolutely made sense, but it just, you know, it's just so much media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But basically, um. You know, then then you know things calmed down a little bit, and then we started getting the actual shots that for review, I mean for finals and the CCBs that could be betters and things like that. So we started getting the the semifinal shots, and I cut them all in with the. Uh, I've never heard that term before. CBB. I like that. CCB. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. C- CBB. Yeah. CBB. CBB. Yeah. Could be better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, ba- basically, it was me and the uh, post production supervisor. Um, hours at end on virtual sessions cutting them in at that point because we were skeleton crew anyways i would trace them myself because i have you know i'm in the same project as as the colorist so i would cut them in trace them for the most part and flag if something was off color wise or if the effect has you know had changed color or if the 
obviously you had to put eyes on it because color was approved for the most part. So it sped things up. If, if shots just dropped in and traced, then we didn't even have to go to a color session. And I would show it to the client. The client will go, that looks great, but you're the final eyes on it. What do you think? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I would play it three times and go, yeah, it looks good. <laughs> I see. Yeah. And on that note, for any kind of a final QC, I assume once you finish your online, you have a final QC pass for, I guess, a few different things, right? There'd be the tech for technical purposes, but then there'd also be things like there's a billboard in the background or there's a license plate or are these things cleared? I guess all that would have happened through the same kind of remote session with the editorial team. Uh, yeah, it was there a couple of rounds of it were with them. And then they also had an external QC done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We we would send to Eurofins. It, we would uh, we would output a file. Eurofins was the final QC house, um, mm-hmm. you know, before it got to Amazon. So I mean, essentially, I'd have Siggy play through the episode one final time, you know, just to be like, hey, sign up, you know, make sure everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, he would bless the color, uh, and then we would also send a file out to the clients, and they would play it back for their internal team, and they would send us any notes if they have any last minute color notes or any. I can't think of a specific example, but if, hey, what VFX shot is this? Just double checking and making sure everything's good with conform and tag mm-hmm. Hadar. And then assuming that's all good to go and everything's blessed, then we would output final and send to Eurofins and they would do the final QC. And then usually after, uh, by the second round of QC notes, uh, it was approved and good to go. I see. And just because I'm not familiar with that final process, what kind of things are they normally checking for? Um, I mean, it's a standard tech and color check. I mean, they'll flag anything that they, you know, like framing er- framing errors. Oh, like is, is color out of gamut and yeah. things like that? Or like even like a color error if they find like a possible bad key or if something. I mean, those, those are rare. It's typically like framing errors. Like, you know, uh, they might find a lot of reflections in, in uh, glasses or something that we were unaware of, like a boom mic popping in the frame. Anything. Uh, stutter frames. Sometimes, you know, they there might be something where they might flag that we need to redo or double check something and conform. Dead pixels, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a big one. Shadows. I see. And also in the, in the case of this show, it's uh, shot in Toronto for New York. So there was a lot of uh, Canadian phone numbers and uh, <laughs> Canadian spellings of certain words. <laughs> that, oh, know, that's funny. That, that went, uh, fell through the cracks and QC caught it at the end. Oh, okay. I <laughs> I see. Yeah, like I'm just thinking color and color as we, right. us Canadians spell color. <laughs> it's it's kind of silly. <laughs> right, or, or center and centering, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, so now, you know, now that I feel like we're coming out of this whole craziness that we've lived in, what's the status now for clients that want to go in and work with you guys what 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 does that mean what's the current state of company three in terms of you know before for this job you weren't necessarily having people come in is that slowly changing or is that still the way you're operating uh at the moment we're we're keeping uh you know our numbers down to a minimum i haven't had any clients come in the building yet but it you know it is a very rare occurrence so it's one of those things where we have to plan for it so we're just trying to try and keep everything as safe as possible. Yeah, I see. But the clients, do, the clients do have the option if they need to be there physically now. I see. Well, very cool. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you very much for joining us today, Giovanni and Hadar. Thank you. Yeah, it was great being here. Thank you for having us. No problem.
for anyone tuning in that hasn't seen The Boys or you haven't seen the first season, definitely check it out. And hopefully this podcast has inspired you to see it. And some good news for any of the freelancers out there tuning in that may have dealt with some furloughs or just tough times with a lack of work. Many scripted episodic shows and feature films are already beginning to fire back up across the US and many other countries. So hopefully you see that work coming your way. Stay tuned for the reveal of who our next guest will be and what our next episode will be on social media. And until then, that's a wrap.